Roseanne Montillo is an accomplished author who, as a truth seeker, aims to uncover the truth behind fascinating mysteries through her enthralling literary works. Montillo was born in Stoneham, Massachusetts, and attended Fisher College in Boston and Emerson College, where she received her BFA and MFA in creative writing. Hmm. <laughs> Montillo has taught at Lesley University, Tufts Extension School, and Institute of Liberal Arts and Interdisciplinary Studies at Emerson College. Her latest books include The Lady and Her Monsters, and Halloween and Commemoration of the Dead. Her new book, The Wilderness of Ruin, is a work of creative historical nonfiction that tells the story of a child murderer, Jesse Pomeroy, who roamed the streets of Boston in the early 1870s. Montillo stumbled upon this story in the archives of the Harvard University Library, where she found a file belonging to one of the detectives who worked on this case. It is my great pleasure to introduce to you Roseanne Montillo. Thank you very much for coming today. I know it's very cold outside, so it's, it's nice to see lots of people have made it a point to come and see and hear me talk about my book. Well, as she mentioned, I, um, I teach for Emerson College. I also received my degrees there as well. And um, I love histories. My courses are a combination of literature and history. So I tend to not stumble upon things, but as I spend lots of time in libraries, archives, and look through newspapers, it seems as if things find me instead of me just going out to look for them. I was working on my previous book, The Lady and Her Monsters, and I sort of, I was looking through the online archives. You know, Harvard has a very vast collection and you can pretty much dig everything you want online. And uh, while looking for some, something else, the search engine brought me to the files of Detective Woods, who was a local celebrity in the 1870s. He joined the police department in the 1860s, and he became the first detective to open a detective agency here in New England. So he spanned, the collection spans probably almost 70 years. There are lots of cases that he worked on. He eventually passed it on to his son, who continued the tradition as well. But one of the cases that really sort of stood out, and that really made him anxious, and uh, more than anyone else was Jesse Pomeroy. He was used to dealing with lots of um, unusual people, if you will, lots of criminals, but it seemed very uh, unusual that someone so young would do something so terrible. So as soon as I spotted that, it kind of intrigued me as well, and I figured maybe there is a little bit of a story there as well. Well, that's just me. We can move over. This is a photo of Jesse. Lots of people don't really know too much about him. The city back then made sure that he was pretty much lost in infamy, if you will, that no one would know about him, that no one, um, that he wouldn't go on to survive after he was placed in jail. But Jesse was born in 1859 in Charlestown. I, I mean, I'm sure people are, are familiar with the area. And the family lived on Lexington Street, which is an offshoot of Bunker Hill Avenue. They lived there for a couple of years until they moved to Bunker Hill Avenue on number 78, sort of the lower portion of it. You really can't see it too well 
in this picture, but Jesse was born with a little bit of a deformity in his right eye. He had something that they called an albino eye. It was completely white. Um, just, it was an unusual, unusual fact, and uh, it made him stand out more than anything. He, he became the butt of many jokes. He, up until the age of six, he didn't go to school or anything like that. So even in his own, he was pretty insulated in his family and in his neighborhood. But as soon as he started school, um, he was not the tallest, most bodacious six-year-old, so he was very small. He had this little um, cataract or whatever it was called. They didn't really know what it was. But those children who were much older than him, they started picking on him viciously. And he, was, he used to go home and, become, and be bloodied, beaten, uh, suffering all kinds of uh, purple bruises upon himself. I mean, it was a tragic what, what, he, what people were doing on him. But at home, things were not any better because his father, who was not the most, who was not the kindest person on the planet, his father also believed that Jesse was probably possessed by the devil. He believed that maybe that little mark that he had in his eye was the sign of the devil. So what he tried to do was to drive the devil out of him with, a, with his belt. He would enjoy stripping Jesse completely naked and abuse him relentlessly for hours on end, um, up to the point where many times he would pass out completely. In 1871, when Jesse was 11, 12 years old, there was sort of a crime spree in Chelsea right across from Charlestown. People don't really know too much about that. Those records have, you know, kind of been lost, but children started complaining that they would see an older boy, they were being accosted by an older boy who would initially befriend them with candy, um, trips to the, to the circus, money, he would give him little coins and eventually take them to faraway places, really obscure places, and there do all kinds of uh, naughty things to them. He started off just by slapping them around a little bit. Eventually, he sort of graduated to more unusual means of uh, beating them up. He would tie them up. He would bring rope with him. He would bring a knife, and he abused about nine of them until the very last one, he tied him up to a pole. He stripped him naked, he cut him viciously with a knife, and he almost tried to cut off his genitals as well. And what was happening there was that he was pretty much recreating the crimes and the abuse that he was receiving on those who were much younger and smaller than himself. He was doing the same thing at school. He felt that because people were picking on him, he had a right to pick on those who were younger than himself. And of course, the school didn't go for that. The odd situation was that when Jesse did um, the bullying on other children, his mother would be called there to sort of take him away. But when people picked on him, um, nothing really happened. So his mother, not the most pleasant woman, uh, his, mo his mother was, um, was very upset by the whole ordeal. She figured that if people were sort of bullying him, why wasn't anything being done about that? Perhaps they should find a way to stop that abuse 
towards him. And in, and in turn, he would be kinder to those who were much smaller than him. Mrs. Pomeroy, as I said, I mean, here, this is a very old picture. She's an old woman by now. There are no pictures of her when she was younger. But even then, people say that she was not the kindest woman on the block. And I think that's a mild way to put it. She was very unpleasant. She was very cruel. She was very, um, she was very protective. She was only in her early 30s. And um, her husband was not really providing for the family. So everything that was done to the family, it sort of fell on her to make sure that her children had enough to eat, enough to be taken care of. And um, she also had an older son who was two years older than Jesse. And he was, Charles was a, he was a good boy. I mean, he worked, he brought whatever money he had to the family. He was very respectful to everybody on the outside. When he was by himself, he was just as naughty as Jesse. The only difference was that he was smart enough not to get caught, if you will. And um, Mrs. Pomeroy felt that people were not treating her children very kindly, especially Jesse. She felt that especially her husband was being incredibly cruel to him. And one afternoon, when she returned home from her job, she was a seamstress, she found that Jesse had been beaten so severely that he had blood oozing out from everywhere on his body and that, his husband, that her husband had done that. Being the kind woman that she was, how else would she you know, repay the situation? She took out a butcher's knife and went after her husband with that. So, I mean, the whole family was slightly into crime, if you will. So, you know, the apple didn't fall too far from the tree, but she was, uh, she was a hands-on type of mom. She took out a butcher's knife and went after her husband so that he had to run out of the house almost entirely naked and drunk, um, screaming that his wife was trying to kill him, which she was. It just, in, a, in an article later on, she said that she regretted not so much taking in the knife, but that she actually hadn't stabbed him. So, you know, goes to show you the kind of violence that Jesse and, her, and his brother would see in the family. And this kind of went on for years and years. And um, even though she had an inkling that her son, that Jesse was developing into, developing a, a streak of cruelness that was not really usual for a boy, she didn't do very much about it. Um, he went around the neighborhood killing little kittens and uh, he was found one day walking up and down Bunker Hill Avenue with a knife and a dead cat in his hands. So of course, that should be a signal that something is off. And um, she had birds in her house that one day she found completely dead because Jesse had twisted off their necks. So you would, you would think that maybe, just maybe, you know, she would do something a little bit more hands-on. But she really didn't want to believe that her son had done anything until 1872. Um, the Boston Globe got a hold of the story of the abuse that was going on in Chelsea. And instead of being just a local story, which until then Chelsea had pretty much kept to itself, the Boston Globe spread it everywhere. Now everybody knew that someone was doing these little things, just was abusing these little children. And they, they had a description of the boy. Of course, he was taller, he was big, he was husky, but to every four or five year old, Jesse appeared very tall, so that didn't really work out. But when she read that, 
she recognized something that really spoke to her of her son. And she decided that instead of going to the police, as she should have done, what she needed to do was move the whole family away from that spot. And so the family moved from Bunker Hill Avenue to South Boston. As, as it was, the abuse in Chelsea ended, of course, because he wasn't, he wasn't there to do anything anymore. But the children in South Boston suffered quite a bit because they moved there in August and probably weeks after they moved there, the local authorities and the local people started finding little children tied up to posts, uh, beaten and abused on the beaches of South Boston. And of course, the Boston Globe was the one, the first one to make the connection. What happened? You know, you go from Chelsea, now they're spreading over to South Boston. Who is this person who's doing this? And um, as it turned out, Jesse had him hadn't been too careful. He was still a small child. He was still only 12, even though he was very good with the knife and the abuse that he was inflicting on everybody else. He had no clue what not to leave behind, the things that he should have done so that he wouldn't get caught. And in fact, one of the children that he abused so severely was someone by the name of Joseph Kennedy, very small boy, only four or five years old. And that boy was not as, he didn't take it as lightly as everybody, every other child did. Every other child was afraid to talk. Joseph, not so much. He was very chatty. And one thing that he told the police was that he was tall, the boy who abused him was taller, was bigger, but he also had something queer about the eye. And as soon as they pinpointed that little detail that up until that point, uh, no one had known about it, they figured how hard can it be to find a boy who's only about 12 with something wrong with his eyes in South Boston. You'd be shocked, but it is harder than you imagine. The police looked all over throughout all the schools in the neighborhood. They couldn't find him. They actually walked into one of Jesse's classrooms while he was there. Still couldn't make him out to be. He was very good at sort of hiding behind a desk. And um, the only way that they had to pretty much know that it was him, it was because he walked into the police station. One day when the police had been at school and they hadn't recognized him. He felt so sure of himself that no one was going to catch him that on his way to school, he decided, well, let me go see what people are saying in the police station. So he walked right in. And the first person that he saw was Joseph, the little boy he had assaulted, and the officer who had been at school. And of course, Joseph, being the good boy that he was, pointed at him and he said, well, there you have it. That's him. He's right here. You don't have to do anything. And he was caught. And um, as soon as he, walked, as he was caught, Mrs. Pomeroy, you know, said, well, maybe there's something wrong with him. He has that little issue over there. People have been abusing him. Um, he likes to read the dime novels, which were these unusual publications back then. They were full of violence and blood, and every child was just saving up to buy them. She also mentioned that he had been sick when he was three. He had something called brain fever, which was just a formal word for an inflammation. And they thought maybe there was some residual issue there. The police didn't buy it. They figured that he was just an evil, evil little boy. And they, they placed him in, it was decided that the only place that he could stay would be the Westboro Reform School. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with that place, but it has changed to the Lyman School for Boys. And it is a place where 
back then, it wasn't just for young boys who were considered criminals, but also for parents who were allowed to bring their children who were a little bit disrespectful, who were a little bit more hard to handle, even though they weren't criminals. It was a place where boys were dumped altogether. And Jesse was supposed to stay there for about six years. He was supposed to come out until, not until the age of 18. So the city felt pretty secure back then. He's there. No one like him exists. You know, we can be happy that things have been done correctly. Mrs. Pomeroy, she was craftier than she looks because she figures that she didn't want her son to be there. She thought the reform school was an evil place which would make of her son a killer. If he'd stay there, you know, who knows what would come out, what kind of person would come out. And she made sure that she got together with the local police department, the local cops, back when she was a younger woman. I have to believe she was more attractive and more pleasant than the picture lets off because she had quite a few affairs with the local police department and people who could make things happen for her son. So there had to be a reason as to why these high-powered cops would go at and I'm not trying to be disrespectful. It's just that it's unusual. She was not, people were surprised because she was not the friendliest woman. These cops should have known that she had something up her sleeve, and they didn't. I mean, they, these were lonely guys who weren't married, who worked very, very hard, and she was, I don't want to use the word easy, but, you know, she was available, let's call it that. So she made sure that she was available when the person who had to write a recommendation for her son was there. As it happened, she involved a couple of police detectives and a couple of, and a, a chief of police in South Boston. They wrote some, a very good uh, recommendation to the Westboro police, um, police Department and also the reform school, and Jesse was allowed to leave not even about a year after he was put in the reform school. So she had her way. And of course, as soon as he was out, those cops were out as well. She didn't have any more relationships with them because she didn't need them anymore. So Jesse returned home. She, he returned to South Boston. People didn't want him there. The community, um, the community didn't want him to be around them. The place, South Boston, was full of children, and they were afraid that probably he was going to do the same thing again. But the police department told the people in South Boston, that they had to leave him alone. And if they actually did something to him, they were going to be arrested. So they had to make sure that these people stayed far away from him as possible. And um, he was there, he was part of the community. Mrs. Pomeroy had, up until that point, and her son, they had a house, and um, they had opened up a little store where she did her stitching and whatever a seamstress does. Um, she did her job right over there, and her son sold newspapers. So Jesse bought, um, he got a job there, and he became kind of a model child in the community. Of course, he wasn't, it wasn't to be because as soon as he returned home, just weeks later, a little girl disappeared from the area. She was 10 years old, Katie, and uh, she was going to school, and she realized that something was missing from her pocketbook. It was a note notepad, a note card. She needed paper for school. She went everywhere. I mean, there are records of her walking through all the stores in South Boston, and no one had that paper that she needed. 
as it happened, Jesse did. The store where he worked had paper, and he told her, you know, I need to go downstairs to get it. As it happens, I have little kittens downstairs. Do you want to come and see them? The little girl followed him, and she, went, she was never seen again. Never. She was, but when they found her, it was too late. Jesse did whatever he did very quickly because they saw him go down. They saw him come up. It was in a span of like five minutes. So whatever happened downstairs happened quickly. Everybody knew he had done it. Um, the whole community knew that, but they didn't have any tangible proof. The police even searched the basement where he had gone. But in the 1870s, um, forensics was not, I mean, they were not the CSI guys that we see today. They just went in, they looked around, they didn't see any blood. It was full of ashes. So the blood that had, whatever had happened there, the blood had seeped through the ashes and they couldn't distinguish between ashes, soot, or blood. They didn't find anything. Two minutes, they walked outside and they let him go. Nothing happened. Five weeks after that, a little boy, only four years old, Horace, I think I have a picture of him. That's him. He was four years old. Um, the family was new in the neighborhood. As it happened, they had moved there from Charlestown as well. Back then, South, South Boston was a place where people went to when they lost their jobs, they needed to start again. And his family had gone there to begin. His father was a carpenter, so he had found work in the area. Horace was, um, was four. He was, they, all the papers call him a handsome little boy, and he was. He was an adorable little boy. Lots of people thought that he looked like a girl. And um, he was very well known in the neighborhood, even though they'd been there for only about a month. And um, one morning in April, he decided that he wanted to walk down to the bakery and buy some sweets. His mother was a lovely woman, didn't think anything of it, didn't know all the history. She didn't even know that they had moved across the street from Katie's house where the little girl had disappeared. I mean, she allowed him to go to the bakery and she never saw him again. I mean, it was 10.30 in the morning and people around the area saw him walking with Jesse back and forth to the bakery and uh, they didn't think anything of it. They didn't stop him. They didn't know in his history, you would imagine someone to kind of say, gee, you know, what are you doing? Where are you taking that little boy? No one did. Where he took him was to South Boston, to the beaches, right on the beach. And um, he was found in the late afternoon, about five o'clock, they found him dead. He had been stripped completely. Um, he had a knife had gone through his right eye as well. He had been nearly castrated, completely decapitated. And also, um, he, he had been set on fire. Nothing really much remained from him. They didn't know who it was. The only thing that they had that the police could find on the spot was they, a set of footprints. And there was something odd with the footprints because even though they were nice and clear, it seemed as if the person who was wearing them was wearing a pair of boots that had some kind of a cut right at the bottom of his boots. So that cut left a very good imprint on the sand. And Detective Woods, the man that I found who left all the records, he was smart enough to decide to take some molds from, the, from those footprints and he kept them for later. They also found two people who had been there on the beach around that time. Two brothers had been there just fishing 
and they saw a younger, an older boy running away from the spot. They saw he was older, he was kind of husky, he was wearing a cap that described all of the clothing that he was wearing. And when the police and the detectives got together at the police department, they started looking into things and they saw that there was something really familiar about this. Um, it looked like the crimes that had been done in Chelsea prior to that and also the ones that had been done in South Boston. But they wondered, I mean, could Jesse Pomeroy had graduated from abusing children to actually killing them? Besides, they didn't even know that Jesse was out of the reform school. They didn't even know that he was in the neighborhood. And they thought, well, someone could actually graduate to killing someone, but he's not here. Until someone said, yes, he is. He's been here for a while. You just don't know that. They went to his house. Mrs. Pomeroy, of course, was aggravated to no end. And um, they found his boots, which matched precisely the footprints in the sand. They also found that he was entirely scratched on his neck, um, his hands. They found blood on his clothing. So by having those scratches and the, the footprints and everything else that they had on hand, they realized that whoever had killed these children was not any older than they were. He was only 14. One of the things they couldn't figure out was why. I mean, people ask why a lot. They didn't know. I mean, lots of people thought, well, he was born odd, so of course he's going to do something unusual. People blamed his family. His family was very broken, so they thought whatever he had seen, of course he had seen his mother going after his father with a butcher's knife, so where do you get it from? People blamed um, the reading that he did. He liked really vicious, bloody, bloody uh, material, so maybe they thought that he was just recreating whatever he was reading about. They thought that maybe the abuse that he had suffered as a boy, he was just giving it out as good as he took it. They also blamed jealousy. They thought that he was jealous of these children. As you can see, this little boy was adorable. He was handsome. He wasn't bullied. He was loved more than anyone else in the street. I mean, his children, uh, his parents doted on him. They loved him. They adored him. Jesse didn't have that. So they felt that perhaps Je Jesse was just jealous, and he wanted to um, just to have people feel a little bit of the pain that he was feeling. So it was not surprising that he had stabbed him right in the eye, similar to where he had that stain. He felt that this little boy should be maimed just as much as he was. So they had lots of reasons as to why he had done that. He didn't say anything. He never did. He never said why. The reality was that no one had the answer, and no one does to this day. I mean, he could, perhaps he was born mentally ill, but there was no indication that he had any history. Despite what the family was doing, there was no history of mental illness anywhere, so that didn't really fly all that well. The only thing they knew was that the only kindness Jesse, people could do towards Jesse was to hang him. What would you do with someone like him? If you release him, he's going to do it again and probably do something much worse than that. People felt that he shouldn't even be tried. They should just bring him to the Boston Common and either stone him or hang him or do him, you know, just get rid of him. And the not the funny part, but the, the awful part was that 
people felt like this throughout the state, throughout the country. Um, they had no inclination to study him, that maybe they could learn something from him if this were to happen again. They felt that he was so unusual that nothing like this could ever happen again. You would never get a child who would kill other children again. Of course, we know that's not the case, but you know, no one thought of, of studying him. The only person who did was Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes, who felt that perhaps this boy shouldn't die, he shouldn't go to jail, but maybe just place him in an institution and make sure that he, that he talks, that he tells you why, and maybe if something like this happens again, um, you have more opportunities to study it, to know what happened next. That didn't happen. He was put on trial and he was sentenced to die. The trial started on December 8, 1874. And at the time, the, the author, Herman Melville, was also in the area. He was celebrating Thanksgiving with his family, so he became fascinated with the case as well. Um, those of you who read his books know that he loved the idea of madness, evil, good versus evil, so he used those things quite a bit in his own writing as well. His own family was full of um, people who had suffered mental, mental illness to some degree or another. So he felt that perhaps this boy was just mentally ill. Although at the time he wasn't writing any fiction, he felt that perhaps he could use them later, and he did. He was placed, Jesse, um, this is not the right picture, he was placed in the Charles Street Jail, which is right down from here. Those of you know it now as the Liberty Hotel. Um, you can actually go there and uh, have breakfast, and uh, some, some of the plates they use are the same ones that they used to use on their criminals, so um, can have, for all you know, you could be eating in the same plate that Jesse did. I'm not sure how much comfort that gives you, but, you know, um, it has become a world-renowned hotel. So back then it was a jail where people stayed up until their execution. So he was placed there, and uh, the governor at the time, Governor Gaston, he didn't want to sign the execution warrant. He felt that the state shouldn't be known as the state who had executed one of the youngest killers on record. He just didn't want that stain upon the state, and he just let it drag out. He languished in there in that jail for over a year until Gaston lost the next elections. A new governor came in, and the first thing that he wanted to do was deal with Jesse. What would you do with someone like him? So he felt that you shouldn't kill him. I mean, the previous governor was right. I mean, why kill this boy? Just place him in jail. Put him in jail. And this is the Massachusetts State Prison, an old picture. Right now, on the lands where this used to be, you have Bunker Hill Community College. So it was around that, that spot over there. But the governor felt that Jesse shouldn't just stay in prison forever. It wasn't enough. What you had to do was to put him there in solitary confinement for the rest of his days. You had to place him there, leave him alone. Don't talk to him, don't touch him, don't give him any visitors, don't do anything to him. Just lock the door and leave him behind. So Jesse, Jesse entered the state prison when he was 16, almost 17, and didn't come out again late in his 60s. He spent 43 years in solitary confinement, which is the second longest stint. I don't know how many of you have those little records. I keep them. But he's the second one after Robert Stroud. He's called um, Birdman of Alcatraz. So he has the distinction of having spent a year more than Jesse. So, you know, even he felt that even that he couldn't get it right. So, but 
Jesse was, most people who were in solitary confinement, they committed suicide right after a week. It was so horrifying that people didn't want to stay there. This is another picture of, this, of the prison. Um, it was so mentally horrifying that people just died. They tried everything they could to commit suicide. Jesse spent 43 years in there. He had his mother visit every three months, but beyond that, no one else. And um, he did surprisingly well. He learned half a dozen languages. He read quite a bit. He wrote newspapers, articles. He, he tried for a pardon probably more times than he should have, and all the records are available to you if you really want to dig in there but I'm not sure how many of you want to. And, but he never once expressed any remorse for the things he had done. He never said that he was sorry. He never said that, um, you know, that something had, that his, because his father had abused him, he should, he felt like he needed to do that. He said that he didn't, he never said that he was jealous, nothing at all. The only thing that he said was that maybe they had it coming he, you know, he didn't do anything that the children hadn't asked for, and he was actually very kind to them. So whatever had happened, well, maybe they should have been forewarned. So he really not only didn't express any remorse, he just was pretty cocky about the whole ordeal. And this is him. In 1918, after, 40, after 43 years, the state allowed him to, even though they didn't sign the pardon um, papers, they allowed him to get out. He was placed in the general population. They felt that at least now that he was an older man, he could have a little bit of company. As it turned out, he didn't want any company. He was very happy in his little cell. He was very happy with his books. He was very happy with his um, trinkets that he had collected. He now had two little cells sort of combined, but they were not that large. So, But he, he liked his place. He, he liked to walk around and around the cell for hours on end because he felt that he needed to be in good shape when he got out. So he liked to do exercises. And he felt that on the outside, well, people were going to pick on him. He was the worst of the worst. And of course, even though the prison had so many people who had done horrible deeds, he was remembered as the one who had killed two children and abused nearly a dozen more, so over a dozen more. So he didn't want to be with anybody else, but he was. Uh, people weren't going to indulge his likes. I mean, they weren't going to allow him to do whatever he wanted. So they allowed him to get out. This is him. He has, he's dressed up a little bit. The state prison back then used to have, I don't wanna call them parties, but during the holidays, they allowed the prisoners to get a little bit more dressed up and uh, have maybe a turkey dinner or something like that. And this is him looking, um, sharp, if you will, as much as one like him could look sharp. But as you noticed, his eye looks a little bit better as well. And in 1929, Jesse was now getting, you know, a little bit older, and he was suffering from all kinds of illnesses. He had a hernia, he had, he couldn't walk very well, and the prison officials felt that they needed to put him in a different place. They needed him to take him out from the state prison and put him in the Bridgewater State Farm, it was called back then. In reality, that place was back then just almost a dumping ground for everybody who was sick, who was mentally sick, who was a criminal, 
it was a place where relatives were allowed to bring their family members if they couldn't handle them. It was a, an adult version of the reform school where he had been, a much, much worse place. And um, pictures during that time are not available, but this is the prison now, which, you know, it's, it doesn't look too terrifying on the outside, although you see the barbed wire and all of that, but the details of what went on back in um, are quite terrible. He was given a room for himself. He was given a little bit of freedom. He had all the companionship that he wanted. He didn't want any of that. He felt that he had been isolated when he was a young boy. Nobody wanted to be around him then, so who cares? You know, he didn't want people around him now. He tried many, many times to escape from here as well, as he had tried many times to escape from the state, house, from the state prison. Um, even though he was in isolation for 43 years, he had his ways of finding little things that could really help him. He used, he used a fork and a knife. He used all kinds of little uh, trinkets that allowed him to open up the doors. You would think a state prison, especially isolation, would be really tough to get out from. It wasn't. He got out over a dozen times. He was unlucky in a sense that he was caught many times because of just sheer stupidity, if you will. And a couple of times he was caught before because one of the guards had a cat with him and the cat noticed that Jesse was out of his, of his um, little cell and the cats just jumped on him and started meowing and uh, everybody was alerted that he was out. If that cat hadn't been there, I mean, the cat should have known better because he knew what Pomeroy had done when he was younger to cats. But, you know, um, he just tried and tried. And even here, just months before he died in 1932, he tried to escape, but he was, he, he didn't, never managed. People don't really know where he was going because everybody wanted to kill him. So where would you go? What, what would you do? His mother had died. His brother didn't want to have anything to do with him. He had some supporters, but they support these kinds of people until they're on the inside. Once they actually get out, I'm not sure how friendly they would have been to him. So he really had no one, and people still had no clue as to where he wanted to go. He left a letter that said that he wanted to go to Maine, buy a farm, and become a farmer. You know, he was in his 70s, so I'm not sure that plan might have worked for him, not to mention that he was well-known throughout the country he had no money, so I'm not sure what he planned on doing, but he never escaped. And in 1932, 1932, he died very calmly of heart disease, just in his sleep, which people thought it was, um, it shouldn't have happened because he just went to sleep one night and never woke up. They wanted something more, something more exciting, just something more tragic to happen to him, and uh, it didn't. He just, his heart gave out and nothing more than that. What happened afterward was that people tried, there was a rush of newspapers, articles back then, and uh, they wrote about Jesse, they wrote about what he had done. People had tried to study him. They realized the word psychopath had come into general use probably in the 1880s, so they applied that term to him. But what they tried to do, especially the city of Boston, was they wanted to forget about him. So he was, Never, if you read the texts from the 1870s and even later on, um, hardly anybody ever mentions him. So you have to know what you're looking for to 
know that this boy existed, that he had done what those crimes, that he had committed those deeds. People didn't want to be associated with him at all. So Jesse has gone down in infamy as being one of the youngest serial killers that ever existed right in our doorsteps as well. So I think, you know, it's nothing to be proud about that, but you know, he's one of the youngest. He's one of the most vicious ones as well. And um, he should have been a case study, but he never did. So I think, and unfortunately, many more have come after him. So whatever the people thought back then that he was such an anomaly, that he was so unusual, that nothing like this would ever happen again, it didn't work out because people were aware that children were doing these sort of things um, often, too often as well. So there you have the history of Jesse in sort of in a nutshell. And there you have it. Very good.